artist goes on release tomorrow, but already it is laden with awards. Come the Oscars, it could win a whole lot more. Daring and elegant in equal measure, it is a musical comedy written and directed by a French man with a great name, Michel Hazanavicius, and a lot of people are calling it a silent film. Now this is a misnomer. Yes, it is set in Hollywood during the late 1920s and early 1930s, but it all depends on what we mean by silent film. I mean, if it's silent, how can it be a musical? The Jazz Singer was released in 1927, and while it was by no means the first film to use sound, it did have fully synchronised dialogue sequences, and for the sake of convenient history, The Jazz Singer is now regarded as the one that marked the beginning of the end for silent film. Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot Toot Christie? All right, hold on, hold on. No, listen, play Toot Toot Christie, three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Toot Toot Christie, goodbye. Toot Toot Christie, don't cry. The truth is a little muddier because from the very start filmmakers were trying to wed sound and image. Thomas Edison attempted it as early as 1902 but those early efforts faltered because the soundtrack was not on the same strip as the celluloid and so it wasn't synced up. In 1921 D.W. Griffith, the man who was called the father of American cinema, used a sound introduction for his film Dream Street and even though the show went off without a hitch Griffith stopped using sound because he thought it was financial suicide. Only 5% of the world speaks English, he said, so why should I lose 95% of my audience? The truth is that what we refer to now as silent cinema was anything but silent. There wasn't a moment's peace in cinemas back then. From the opening credits to the last title card, it was wall-to-wall music. most part, the music was adapted from works already cemented in the public's consciousness. And while the prestigious picture houses had their own orchestras to play scores that were composed specifically for the most prestigious pictures, the vast majority of cinemas were flea pits where a cinema would sit alongside the screen, banging away, furiously improvising to the images that flickered through the projector. Sounds like a quaint curiosity now, but to a lot of filmmakers back then, the arrival of sound meant that the true art of cinema was about to be lost. Moving images on a silver screen, accompanied only by music, was so far removed from reality, it were as if a painting had come to life with an orchestra providing a non-verbal narration. It was the stuff of dreams. At the very most, the music either complemented or contrasted with the picture, but it never fully explained the picture. So you saw one story and heard another. And to a lot of filmmakers, it was the gap between what you heard and what you saw that the art of cinema was formed. Listen to this and think of an image. We all heard the same thing, but we all pictured something different. And the opposite would be true. If I were to show you a picture, 
each one of us would imagine a different melody. In the 1920s, the difference between the picture and music provided a mental space for audiences in which they could interpret the story. When sound was synchronized to the image, that mental space shrank and audiences were told what the image meant. After The Jazz Singer, many filmmakers recognized that what you saw was exactly what you heard, and for them, that diluted the transporting magic of the movies. Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. There just aren't any faces like that anymore. Maybe one, Garbo. Those idiot producers. Those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? That's from Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder's love-hate letter to Hollywood and the way it devours its talent. In it, Gloria Swanson played a faded star of the silver screen, yearning for a comeback. In real life, Swanson had been a huge star, but there had been one who was even bigger, Greta Garbo. The only problem was that while audiences had marvelled at Garbo's beauty, none of them had actually heard her speak. Garbo was Swedish and her English came so heavily accented that Hollywood held off a full three years until 1930 before making her first talkie. They chose a Pulitzer Prize winning play by Eugene O'Neill, Anna Christie, but such was the intense publicity surrounding the release that the studio needed just two words to announce the event. Garbo talks. Give me a whiskey, ginger ale on the side. And don't be stingy, baby. Well, shall I serve it in a pail? I'll let you to the ground. It's hard to overestimate the marvels of early cinema. Watching films without the sound we take for granted today, our eyes suddenly waken because we're reading the faces of the actors and studying their expressions. Early cinema is filled with brilliant comedies, heartbreaking romances, breathtaking spectacles, madcap action and stunts that would turn your hair white. Not to mention a million images that have been ripped off time and again by contemporary cinema. Another great thing about watching those early films is that you are witnessing the formation of a new language. This new language was pieced together by way of editing, and those early filmmakers were making it up as they went along. Let me put it another way. Over 8,000 years ago, the written word was invented. How was it decided what those letters of the first alphabet would look like? Can you imagine being witness to that event, knowing that Homer, Shakespeare and Tolstoy lay ahead? The arrival of cinema was like a new consciousness. It came as a fresh dawn in how we see and hear ourselves. It was like looking at the very first photograph of the Earth taken from outer space. 